2: Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor, and this is the Radio Times Podcast. Every week, I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives, both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. Happy New Year! I hope you had a wonderful, restful and joyful Christmas break. Welcome to the first episode of the Radio Times podcast in 2024. Joining me this week is the comedian Ed Gamble. He first ventured into comedy while studying at the University of Durham and quickly made a name for himself on the London comedy scene, juggling part-time jobs with late-night gigs. A regular on panel shows, Ed has also found success talking about food. He is a judge on the BBC's Great British Menu and a host of the chart-topping food podcast, Off Menu alongside James Acaster. In this episode, he talks about how losing seven stone in his early 20s impacted how people treated him and why, as a type 1 diabetic, he hates dieting brands using medication intended for diabetics to promote weight loss. Plus, we talk about the return of the traitors and unpick why everyone is obsessed with the show. Welcome to the Radio Times podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: First and foremost, what is the view from your sofa? Talk me through your living room setup.
1: Well, living room setup, uh, I've just been in there, but my uh, memory is terrible. It's a two person (laughs) sofa uh, and then various other places to sit down uh, that my cat has commandeered over the years. So it's basically my cat's room and we're allowed to go in it. And watch TV and play on the PS five and that's about it. I guess that's that's all there is. Do you have a big telly, small telly? I guess it's a big telly, but all tellies are massive now, aren't they? I think it'd be harder it's to true. harder to track down a small telly. It's what uh, what size is it? Thirty seven, thirty-seven inches, something like that. It's big, it's big, but not like you wouldn't go, why have you got that in this room? It works for the room. It's not obnoxious. No, exactly. Exactly.
2: What have you enjoyed watching recently on telly?
1: Oh, well, I've had such little time recently that whenever I do get a day off, I tend to absolutely binge things. So I've just finished, uh, there's a show on Amazon Prime called Deadlock, which is an Australian comedy murder mystery, but they've done both of them insanely well. Like it feels sort of Scandi, but also it feels quite British murder mystery, but the characters are really funny and really well drawn and the mystery is... Very tightly written, so that is a massive recommendation that I'm giving people. I think it's great,
2: and that's funny. It's, that's passed me by completely. I've not even heard of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's been popped on Amazon Prime. I know a few of the people who are in it because they're like Australian comics are in it, mm-hmm. but I got it. I got recommended it like the other week by another comedian, and then I've just burned through it. I think it's great, and then also I just started. Slow Horses on Apple as well, which I'm which I'm loving.
2: Yeah, that was that was another one that seemed to uh, be kind of a word of mouth recommendation. Despite having a huge cast, it was very much people saying, "Oh, this is really really good. You have to watch it."
1: Yeah, because I think sometimes those things on like Apple tend to pass me by because even if they've got Mm. big casts, because you just assume. They've thrown so much money at this situation, and I'm not sure how good the actual show is going to be. But it's fantastic, isn't it? It's it's so it's so well written. Again, it's really funny, and just the plot just really keeps yeah. you hooked. And the, the cast is incredible.
2: Do you have a comfort TV, something that you return to again and again?
1: Yeah, I tell you what, this is. I'm not saying this is good telly necessarily. It's called Old Enough. It's a Japanese show where they basically make very small kids do like adults chores for the day and see if see if they can do them so they've got like a mission to go on they'll be like have to go and buy some apples and then go and pick up dry cleaning and then get back to the house and they've got all the cameramen are like secretly filming them like there'll be somebody who looks like a groundskeeper but he's got a camera secretly like filming how these and it is they wouldn't be able to make it because it's harrowing sometimes they don't do it and they're absolutely devastated and there is one where a little boy has to go down a hill uh, and pick up some fish. And he's taking some fish down, and then he has to pick up some apples, and he just keeps dropping the apples down the hill. And it is, but it happens like three times in a row, and it makes me cry laughing. But also, it is, <laughs> it's like the ultimate tragedy. It's devastating. But I, I, lo- I love that show.
2: Did you ever watch that TV show that's unlocked uh, a weird. Memory that was deep, deep in my brain. But did you ever watch that show? I think it was on Channel Four, and they had twelve children go and live in this pretend village and pretend to be in World War Two.
1: Yeah, in that I era. do. I've, I think I vaguely remember that. I've definitely seen shows like, that are like the social experiments where they put kids in a house and they have to they have to just live with each other, and then it just immediately turns feral yeah. and chaotic, and they all bully one of them, and it's it's really. It's dreadful when you actually see what's at the root of human nature. <laughs> <I know. laughs>
2: and also you expect children to be so kind and so polite. Yeah, they're not and at they... all. They're awful. <laughs> so brutally honest with each other as well. Yeah. Do you have anything that is a TV turnoff? So things that, or genres that you think, that's definitely not for me?
1: No, I mean, I'll give, I'll give anything a go. Probably when I was like a teenager, early 20s, I was probably quite snobby about TV and about comedy and about all of that stuff and... Obviously, you know, that was around probably the advent of reality TV and I was probably quite snobby about mm-hmm. that at the time. But now I'm I'm open to anything and I, I'm absolutely open to these things that I previously would have thought were absolute trash and just enjoy them for what they are. Yeah. Mainly that happened in lockdown, so that, that was when my wife got me into Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and <laughs> uh, Below Deck and things like that, and we just binge-watched those. And, you know, it's obviously not good TV, and it probably is the beginning of the downfall of humanity, but it's so much fun. You can't deny it. Yeah.
2: And also, especially during lockdown, when the world felt so bleak, I think watching those shows that completely transported you into some somewhere mindless was so essential. Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. I didn't like it when COVID started to filter into those shows. Oh, like, I no. don't want to watch a Real Housewives of Beverly Hills where they've all got masks on and they're social distancing. I'm like, no, just just let them, let them break the rules for our sake.
2: I've also felt that with content that is about COVID, not that it doesn't have its place, but I almost think I've just lived through that. I don't yeah. know if I want to be watching a reminder of how we spent three years.
1: Well, exactly. And I remember, I don't know if you know the sitcom Superstore, they put a lot of them on Netflix, but they, I think ITV2 started showing them as well. It's really good. I think it's the same production company that made Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I think. And it's like mm-hmm. another like ensemble sitcom in the style of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, 30, not 30 Rock necessarily, uh, Parks and Rec really. And it was on NBC, I think. And it very, very like mainstream US sp- sitcom, but very well written. And they had a whole series that was set in COVID and like the characters were wearing masks and stuff. And you're like, it's not what I watch this for.
2: <gasps> I'm over it. Yeah, I'm over yeah. it. I I'm want done. to turn a blind eye.
1: Yeah, it's supposed to be a fun comedy show. Come on, guys.
2: Yeah, come on. Let's make me giggle. Is comedy something of a busman's holiday?
1: No, not at all. Especially not sitcom and stuff. Because I have written on sitcoms and I've been in a couple of sitcoms. But I still find watching good sitcoms like magic like I wouldn't sit down and watch a stand-up special that is a busman's holiday because I can see the workings and I'm most of the time sat there going oh that's yeah. an interesting bit yeah that's really funny and I like how they've done that and how they've structured that that's it's just not fun but sitcoms are still have uh, still have a relative amount of room to impress me and bowl me over and I don't know how people do do sort of massive narrative sitcoms or even sort of fun episodic things for a long time. So, yeah, I, I still love watching sitcoms. Out of you and your wife, who gets control of the remote? It depends. We watch very few things together now because we just have such different schedules that if we're watching something together, then one of us will end up racing ahead. And I know that's it's supposed to be a big no-no, but it just it, it happens. I'm with you. I'd say we broadly, like if we are sat down together we'll just we'll pick something we've watched before or we'll watch a food show or something like that so i don't think either one of us is really in control i think we're i think we're good at agreeing with what what goes on it's a democracy yeah i like it yeah and also i wouldn't i don't think either of us want to put on something that only one of us mm. enjoys but also she and it will get on my nerves for the rest of the time <laughs> she will just be on her phone watching tv at the same time which I just don't understand. But the thing is, she can do it, and she does seemingly take in all the information. So I still, like, if we're watching something together that we're really trying to keep track of, I'll go, did you see what happened there? Because you're on your phone. And she'll tell me exactly what happened and can probably repeat the script back to me, but is also simultaneously looking at her emails and Instagram.
2: A talented multitasker.
1: Yeah, 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 really, really annoying.
2: (laughs) If you had to have a snack and drink of choice whilst watching telly, what are you going for?
1: Interesting if I'm in and I know there's not much happening the next day and I got a bit of time I will I you know I'll have a I'll have a glass of red wine or two glasses of red wine definitely and just I'm addicted to so, like salted peanuts and roasted salted nuts I'll just like sit there just shoveling those in which is it feels very sort of dickensian but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's what say. I go for
2: it makes you sound of of a certain era but why yeah. not
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. you like, like what you like. I think they're Nailed Snacks about sort of 200 years ago, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your podcast of choice? Oh, at the moment, I mean, I do, I listen to other comedians' podcasts a lot and a lot of my friends' podcasts, but I'm listening, um, I hate to give the guy a plug, but I'm listening to the new the new James Acaster vehicle, Springleaf, which is like a narrative sitcom podcast, which I'm really, really enjoying because it's just something a bit different as well. So I love all yeah. the comedians chatting to each other about stuff, but I'm enjoying the sort of the narrative aspect of listening to
0: James's new one. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear
2: OK, let's rewind the clock and take it back to your childhood. So you grew up in southwest London. What's your first ever TV memory?
1: Rainbow is the most legendary kids' TV show of all time uh, and was my favourite show. And we had record it on tape so I could then watch them over and over again. I think it was set in a house. It was like a studio set. And there was a man called Geoffrey who lived there. But then the three sort of characters that lived there were Zippy Bungle and George. You must have seen Zippy. Zippy's like an alien. He's sort of like a brown zip mouth alien. Uh, Bungle was a massive camp bear and George was a pink hippo, also quite camp. I mean, they were all camp, basically. Kids TV in the, in the 80s and 90s was just, uh, everyone was just, it was great. It was just fantastic. They all sound like John Inman. And Zippy's very naughty. So I, I connected with Zippy on quite a strong level, I think, because he was just a, a naughty, charming alien. So I was a, hu- a huge fan of that show.
2: I don't think I've ever met someone or had someone on the podcast who has such a clear memory.
1: Yeah. Well, I loved it. We went to see it live as well when I was a kid. I'm a huge, huge fan of uh, of Zippy Bungle and George, the Rainbow Gang. There was also a, a musical trio who had come in called Rod, Jane and Freddie. And uh, <laughs> when I grew up, I found out that apparently there was a sort of love triangle thing going on between Rod, Jane and Freddie, which is quite, quite exciting goss.
2: I do quite like it when you... Rewatch something as an adult or, you know, if there are young children around and you watch a film that's intended for children and you suddenly realise all the subcontext.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was definitely a lot of that in Rainbow. There's actually a really famous clip that goes around, which people say is from an episode of Rainbow, where they're all, all the characters are doing like, it's like really heavy innuendo. So it starts with Zippy peeling a banana and going, one skin, two skin, three skin. And before he gets to the next one, George comes in and interrupts him. But apparently that was a, they actually did that deliberately. It was for an outtakes competition at Thames Thames Television for, like, the Christmas party. Ah. So that clip has got out. So it was like a big in-joke with the television company. How so, yeah.
2: funny. See? Right beneath our noses. Was TV watching much of a family thing?
1: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I remember I, I watched quite a lot of rubbish TV with my mum because getting home from school, normally Ricky Lake was on, so we'd watch, like... You know, terrible US talk show sort of thing, and then all the soaps when I was living at home as well. So not all of them actually, mainly mainly Korean and EastEnders. So there'd be nights where it was like two episodes of Corrie and an episode of EastEnders, but n- most nights of the week a soap was on, and I was very into those when I was at home, and sort of completely fell out of the rhythm with that afterwards, and have never got back into it. But yeah, a lot a lot of the soaps, yeah.
2: I still remember the the Christmas special of EastEnders where, was it Bradley got pushed off the top of the pub and it was the most dramatic thing I've ever seen?
1: That might be post my watching perhaps. I mean, I know I, loads of people get pushed off loads of stuff in EastEnders. I don't know why yeah. they build anything above two floors in that place because <laughs> it's just asking for trouble. But... um <laughs> Yeah, I love love all the disaster episodes, all the Christmas episodes. So depressing. It's great.
2: So depressing. And you think how much I don't know misfortune can fall upon one tiny yeah. square.
1: Just move, just move. You know, <laughs> disaster.
2: Relocate. Uh, what were you like as a young person? I am talking specifically about secondary school Ed.
1: Well, big question. Was I naughty? Probably, but um, quite eager to please at the same time, which is a difficult contrast. Yeah, I mean, secondary school ed, I probably, you know, got up to no good. Started drinking probably when I was a teenager and going out most Friday and Saturday nights just to sit in the Wimbledon Common and drink cans of lager <laughs> with all my friends sort of thing. But um, no, I think broadly pleasant, but uh, acting up most of the time.
2: Were you academic? I assume so. You went to Durham?
1: Yeah, well, I went to I went to an academic school and I don't think I was by far the most academic person. that I wasn't, as in the least academic person. That I was like... I was mid-table, probably, but I didn't try. I didn't really try. But I, I didn't. Wouldn't consider myself academic, but I was given the opportunities to be so. I'd say.
2: Mm, yes. Okay. Were you funny while you were at school? Where does comedy kind of come into this? Yeah, I
1: guess. So. I guess so. I guess I was funny, but also I was trying very hard to be funny. So sometimes that is a complete turn off when it comes to uh, to humor. <laughs> I think. Um, and loved comedy and would go to stand up nights when I was like sixteen and watched stand-up and I was obsessed with TV comedy and yeah so as soon as I got to uni I was like how can I do this more and sort of investigated all my options at university.
2: And what were you like do you still remember your first performance?
1: Yeah first first gig was actually in Wimbledon so there was a competition called So You Think You're Funny and I signed up for that thinking well it's supposed to be for people start just starting comedy. I since discovered that Basically, you're supposed to have only done comedy for a year, but people do it after they've been going for like three years. So they make sure they're amazing so they can do well. Whereas my first gig was the Heat and my second gig was the semi-final. So I sort of blew that opportunity. But it also made me do the gig, the fact I'd signed up for it and it was for a competition and my name was definitely down. So yeah, that was my, my first performance was in Wimbledon. I think I was I would have been 19, 18, 19.
2: Goodness. It's so, but it kind of amazes me because I think to stand up in front of a crowd... It's different to, say, acting, where perhaps you can be behind a script, whereas comedy is so unique. It's reliant on so many things that, A, the people in the room will find your set funny, but also, I guess, the courage it takes, especially 18, 19. When you're at that age, I'm sure you're still plagued with all the kind of insecurities of teenage years.
1: No, I actually think it's why it's better to start young because I actually think I had a bit of a bulletproof confidence and lack of self awareness that if I tried to start now, I don't you don't see many people trying yeah. to start start in their late thirties. So I think the reason people start young is they're like, oh just let's just give it a go. And even though there are insecurities and there are worries about that sort of thing, I do think as well there is a a, a sort of bomb proof lack of self awareness and like, oh, I'm funny, I can probably give this a go. I can people can pay for this. So yeah, and I think yeah, I think if I tried it now for the first time it would be a total disaster
2: when did you decide to try and make it a career or and how do you go about that
1: well I don't think there's ever a decision I think you just keep doing it so I still feel like I've just kept doing it from that point like I don't you know there there was definitely moments where you know I had other jobs and stuff where I, I decided I can probably quit this other job now because I seem to be making enough from comedy but it's still the constant fear that everything's going to fall apart and you, uh, you you go back to working the jobs you were before. So it just, it happens organically and it grows to the point where, oh, you're actually a professional comedian now. There's, there's never a, an actual decision to be like, this is me now, I'm a comedian.
2: What were the jobs that you were doing?
1: Pretty small fry stuff. Like I was lucky enough that my mum lives in London so I could live with her and do jobs and still be able to gig as well. Uh, so I was working in pubs and I did a couple of, Jobs within the media, sort of, but these really weird jobs where I'd have to get in at six in the morning and basically listen to radio shows and watch TV shows and write down what happened, and any wow. com- any company name that was mentioned, I'd have to write it down. It's it, yeah, it's called media intelligence. It's basically companies pay this company to log any mention of them in the media, so they've got they've got any any mention of them, so they have a sort of full portfolio of what people are saying about them.
2: How did your parents take? your career choice were they sportive
1: yeah I, yeah definitely i mean yeah i was living with my mum she certainly was but i think both of them probably quite i mean secretly worried but i think that's the key is if if you are a parent and your kid wants to do something like this it's probably just keeping an eye on them and uh, and not 24 hours a day going i'm worried that this isn't right for you and that this is, there's no future in this but obviously they were thinking that because that's what i'd think if i had a kid and they said i'm going to do comedy i would be like well You're going to waste years on that and then you're going to eventually have to find something that makes you money. So they were supported, but I'm sure they were worrying madly behind the scenes.
2: In terms of your style of comedy, I think it's often referred to as observational and your jokes can often be aimed at yourself. And you've spoken about how as a child you use comedy as as a form of, I'm going to say self-preservation, but I mean, if you made the jokes first, often people couldn't make them about you. Is it ever hurtful? poking fun at yourself
1: no not at all because I'm in control of it and yeah frankly I just I can't you know it's just the easiest way for me to write there's just it's observational in a sense but it's only observational from my life and you know I'm never going we all do this don't we I'm not that guy I'm doing well I did this and then you sort of hope that other people agree sort of a a form of uh, a form of therapy and that you're going well I've, I've massively fucked something up so you're just praying that other people have done the same thing. And you know if you get a laugh of recognition, you know it's right and that it's fine. Uh, and then if you get a laugh of ridicule, you're like, well, it's still a laugh anyway, isn't it? It's fine. I'm just a weird guy.
2: <laughs> One of your first TV appearances was on Russell Howard's Good News. What was it like entering the world of Talium? And was it at that moment where you thought, OK, I've got this, This is this is... Going in the right direction.
1: Yeah, there's definitely there's milestones along the way, and doing Russell Howard's Good News was definitely one of those. I mean, that show was amazing for that. They put on so many new comics, and you got a chance to do like a 20 minute set. And I just think, yeah, there's sort of not been a show like that since where a genuinely like newer comic can do a set of that length, which is fantastic. So yeah, I don't think there was probably was never like an active thought from me like here we go. It's going great because you just do these jobs and then there might not be anything like that for a couple of years. But in in the interim, you're doing the actual job, which is live gigs. And I was doing podcasts at the time and just plugging away at everything, just trying to make things as varied as possible, which is something I've done throughout my career. I'd just rather have as many different things to sort of supplement the stand-up as possible because then people like you from that. They'll buy tickets to come and see you do stand-up, which has been the main aim.
2: So is stand-up the thing that if everything else were to fall... That would be the thing that you'd want to keep doing.
1: Definitely, I love it. I mean, you know, it, you've caught me on a good day with it, but I, I'm on, I'm on tour, I'm on tour next year. So, like, I'm doing a lot of gigs at the moment to get that show ready, and that's when I'm happiest, is just getting new jokes right and and performing for people because that's that's what I enjoyed to start with. So, mm. I love all the other stuff as well. Of course, I love doing telly, I love doing podcasts. I like, you know, keeping it varied. But you know, the stand up is the thing that that I love the most.
2: What was it like seeing yourself on telly for the first time? Do
1: you watch yourself back generally? Never, absolutely not. I, you know, I, I was there, so I don't need to watch it back. And also, the only the only thing that watching it back will do is make me go, "Oh, that was rubbish," or "I looked bad," or it's like it's never helpful because it's it's been out, it's on, people have seen yeah. it. So you know, it's the same with reading reviews. It never it never helps. Even if it's a good review, it's, it's pointless. You just got to get on with what you're doing. It shouldn't. Nothing of that should change. With change, what you're doing. So you've just got to follow what you think. Follow your nose.
2: Another thing that seems to be really important for a comedian's career is appearing on panel shows. What was that like when you first started doing those?
1: Yeah, good. I mean, I think it can be important for a comedian's career. I don't think they necessarily have to do it. I know plenty of brilliant comics who are having incredible careers without. Doing the panel show circuit and the panel show circuit's sort of dying now anyway. There aren't many knocking around anymore. But the first time I did Mock the Wheat was a big thing, so I wasn't expecting to be booked for that at all. But they'd come to see me a couple of times and I did not know about that. And I just got booked for it. So it was an amazing moment because I'd watched that show growing up. Uh, and then to have a really good first episode of that and get booked for a whole lot more was was huge. And it's a it was a terrifying show to do every time, even though I did it over thirty-five times or something. It was it was scary, but, yeah, and they can be a huge driver of uh, ticket sales on tour as well, so it's, uh, yeah, it's good. They are important, but they're not the be-all and end-all, I'd say.
2: Why were you scared? Is it just because of the, I don't know, the
1: how mock the week is seen? Yeah, definitely, definitely, and it's it's seen as a bit, it was seen as a bit of a star maker, and I think you're just, also, you're you're going on there for, it's a half-an-hour show, but it's a three-hour record, and you're writing essentially like just sheets and sheets of brand new material. So every other TV show, if you're doing stand-up on TV, you will have drilled that set into the ground. Mm. You'll know it back to front and you know that it works. Not the week you're throwing jokes that you've written about the news out there yeah. and you've written them in the last couple of days to get ready for the show and regularly you throw a joke out there and it nothing from the audience because it's not funny, but you don't know that because you've not had a chance to test that anywhere. So you basically—it's a whole new skill doing a show like that, where you've just got to learn. If something doesn't work, it doesn't matter. Move on, do the next one, without yeah. going, going. Oh God, that doesn't work. Or look, or yeah. letting, it, letting your shoulders drop. So it's—it's it's a whole, it's a whole different experience. It's a whole different skill in comedy.
2: Yeah, let's let's come on to talk about off menu. Can we talk about where your love of food stems from?
1: Well, I've I've always enjoyed my food but I was like a proper binge eater and junk food lover for a long time and still do do indulge in those things now and again of course but then I sort of switched my lifestyle around a bit and you know started eating a bit more nutritiously when I was in my early 20s and then really started getting into food and getting into into like specifically well-made quality food and going to restaurants and stuff that's when that's when all that really kicked off and i love food i love talking about it i love giving people restaurant recommendations it's a proper passion of mine and you know i've been very lucky with most of my passions that i've managed to be able to turn them into some sort of uh, revenue stream
2: why did you decide to change your lifestyle where did that 360 come i think just speaking from like own experience, I think after uni, that was also when I got more yeah. into food. I think because I'd eaten so badly while I was at uni and drank to excess, as do most people in the UK,
1: I think. Yeah, yeah was there's, de- that? there's definitely that. I was definitely, you know, particularly I didn't really look after myself at uni, especially not in my first year. Second year was slightly better. And then third year was just chaos. I think there was a bit of that and just being like, right, well, I've finished uni now. It's a bit of a fresh start, but it still took me a couple of years to to get into that element of it. And just realising that I had some sense of willpower. I didn't used to think I had any willpower. I didn't think I was the sort of person who would exercise or the sort of person who would think about what they ate. And You know, even doing it for a day, I was like, well, hang on, I probably could do this. And it's actually making me feel slightly nicer. So that definitely had a big impact on it.
2: When and how did you meet James?
1: On the circuit, just doing gigs, doing gigs with each other. I mean, even though there's a lot of comedians in the UK, the circuit feels relatively small, like you, you will... You will see the same people over and over again at gigs, and just also because you got that shared thing of both both being comedians, you know, you might run into someone you've not seen them for a year, but then you're just talking as if as if you see each other every day, really. So yeah, met James through through doing gigs, and was always already very good friends with Nish Kumar from university. So I was seeing him at gigs a lot, and we're both quite annoying. So we both decided to decided we were going to force James to be friends with us. <laughs> So we would just like just bomb him with messages and stand really close to him at gigs and say we were best friends the whole time because it it would make us laugh and eventually it worked.
2: How did he feel about that? Did he take that?
1: Uh, he, well? he he took it comically grumpily, I'd say. We even we set up a gig called Best Friends Club where me and Nish were friends with James and we'd all do the gig, and we thought that was really funny. <laughs> and we maybe did five of them, and I think James turned up to two of them because he really did, he really <laughs> he really didn't like the the vibe of it and he was very busy at the time as well. But yeah, that made me laugh that we set our best friends club and only two of the best friends turned up to every gig. <laughs>
2: Bless him. I mean, he seems to have taken that on well, the he's, chin, but he's just given up funny. now. He's
1: given up. He let it happen. So now he has to be friends with us.
2: Yeah. In terms of the podcast, obviously it's become huge. You know, everyone that I know listens to it. Uh, anytime you say what podcast you listen to, they say off menu. Were you expecting it to be such a success?
1: No, I mean the idea came from just the fact that we both like talking about food, and we were we spent a long time chatting about it. And we thought, well, I, I thought it would be a good idea. James thought we'd do ten episodes, and then that would be done. Wow. I suspected it would probably run for a little bit longer than that. But I think it was the first one we actually recorded. It was the second one we released, but the first one we recorded was with Grace Dent. And obviously Grace is, you know, huge in the food world and an amazing food writer. And we did her episode and afterwards she was like, you've actually really got something here. I don't think anyone's doing like fun food chat like this. So you, you might actually have something. I was like, oh, interesting. And if Grace is saying that, there's probably something to it. Mm. And it just seemed to we just seemed to hit the rhythm with it quite quickly, and the format came straight away, and I just think it ended up being a really nice blend of of genuine passion for food and and also saying some really stupid stuff like it's the <laughs> it's the silliest I say is on that podcast, and that that really appeals to me, and I, I've found out that if it appeals. To me, when I'm doing it, it probably will appeal to some other people as well. So we're very, very grateful it's doing so well.
2: Well, it's one of those things, isn't it? I think it's such a good combination of, you know, like it's a format that works, you know, and when you get, it's not that usual to find a format. It's like Desert Island Discs. It's just great. But it's also, weirdly, a way where people really open up. I think because it's not intended to be really prying, I think food naturally, talking about food helps people to talk about themselves.
1: Well, exactly, and we. That, I think that's really key as well is we're, we're not there to pry into people's lives. We genuinely just want to know about their food, but, you know, food is so close to a lot of people's hearts and it's so important to people's, you know, private lives and family lives and all of that sort of stuff and their and their work memories that, that it does open them up in that way. But again, that's not a conscious thing that we're doing. We're not going, mm-hmm. well, we don't seem to be prying, but we'll get some good exclusives. We've had yeah. people, like, when we've had, like, bigger celebrities in, like their PR will be like, can you not ask them about this? They don't want to talk about this thing of their personal life, obviously, because that, you know that's the PR's job. And we always have to go. Oh, we, sometimes we go. We're not. Of course, we won't ask them about that. We want to have a nice chat with them about food. Quite often, we don't know about that. We got no <laughs> clue.
2: I was going to say, it really makes me chuckle because sometimes when I I listen to the Paul Mescal episode, I, I wonder why, um, <laughs> and it really made me giggle because. I think it was James who was saying. So uh, you're here to kind of talk about After Sun. I mean, we haven't seen it. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, don't we, never, about.
1: <laughs> we get We get a sheet of, if we're doing a PR one for, you know, someone's play or book or film or whatever it is, Benito puts a sheet in front of us before we start recording and we'll go like, all right, and then start recording and maybe 20 minutes into the interview, Ben will wave at us and point at the sheet. <laughs> and will be like, you've got to talk about this. And... The thing is, as soon as we go, oh, you've got a new thing coming out. You yeah. see their shoulders drop, and they're like, I don't want to do yeah. this again. I've been doing don't this all day, so we just get that out of the way as quickly as possible, and and talk about food because that's what we're. Do there you for. do
2: much research beforehand, no. or is it no?
1: <laughs> no, God, no. <laughs> okay. I just, I, so, I, I think we're there to talk to them as people quite a lot of the time. So they'll look, there's obviously like people that we are well aware of their work because that's why we've said mm. yes to them because we're excited to have them in. But there will be people who we, – we all have people who we're like, I want this person on the podcast and the other two are like, I know nothing of this person. And then you have to go, well, trust me, they'll be good. Yeah. And the others won't do any research. We'll just be like <laughs> – because you just want to get to know them. Because your schedules are
2: mad. When you record a podcast, do you ever have to say no to some really big names because it just doesn't fit with your schedules?
1: All the time. The list is absolutely ridiculous. But then quite often what we found with really big names is we have a bit of a catchphrase on the off-menu WhatsApp, which is um, Benito will send us the name of someone saying, do you want this person on the podcast? And it'll be like, I don't know, like some mega Hollywood actor. And we go, yeah, yeah, obviously, and then he'll put which will definitely happen. So that's like the that's like the sarcastic catchphrase which will definitely happen because you know these stars, they're being like put forward for everything. Over a certain listenership and over a certain viewership, and the chances are, when they actually come to do their schedule, they're not going to have time to do it. So it is funny the names we've been offered, and quite often will not be able to do it as well. So there's (laughs) there's many episodes, potential episodes of off menu in the wind that could have been amazing. But um, and we always think they'll come back round if they really want to do it, they'll come back round. Yeah,
2: I spoke to Andy Oliver on the podcast before, and we had, I mean, that woman is the most incredible person I've she's ever had. She's the best. Had.
1: She's she's the best.
2: I'm obsessed with her. Fully yeah. and wholeheartedly obsessed with her and she's so polite and I've met her in person afterwards and she came over and she said, hi Kellyanne, how are you doing? Is just comments on my Instagram posts. We're now pals. Yeah. But in the episode we spoke a lot about Or she very kindly shared her story about how she used to have a, a problematic relationship with food and now her career and her success is off the back of that reclaimed relationship with food. I know you've mentioned that there was a history with binge eating and I wondered if you felt similarly that your relationship with food, although in the past has been somewhat problematic, has ultimately led to your biggest successes.
1: Definitely. And that's, that's not by design. I mean, I just, you know, I I like talking about things that I'm passionate about and food's definitely one of them. And yeah, I'd say in terms of, I, I would never say that I had a problematic relationship with food necessarily. I was just very, very greedy boy and still am a greedy boy. But now I've, I've, you know, worked out how to enjoy food and not worry about food. Uh, and also know how food makes me feel. And my main aim in life is to feel good and to feel satiated and all of these things. And just bear in mind that food has to work with you rather than against you, yeah. which is a hugely important thing for me. And I think part of that is just enjoying what you like and not, not taking it so far that you, <laughs> you feel rubbish <laughs> afterwards. And, you know, I, I, it doesn't surprise me that I ended up doing stuff within food because I... I, re- I really just I really love it and I know how to deal with it now and I know what what role it plays in my life mm.
2: It's funny though because I think as a culture we are so obsessed with thinness and weight and I think twofold it's been really interesting because I think often we neglect how that impacts men mm-hmm. um, and, and perhaps they're not as part of the narrative as they should be. but secondly, also how when we do lose weight, how that changes people's response to us
1: yeah i mean i i wrote about this a lot in my book actually because when i did when i did lose a large amount of weight the amount of people saying oh you look great or what have you done you look amazing and you're like well what are you all thinking about me before before i did this and you don't know you don't know what's going on and then also you know conversely people saying what's wrong are you ill it's just like i don't know where this thing has come from that people feel like they're allowed to comment on on people's bodies and weight change but it's really it's really depressing if you're on the other end of it and i do agree that quite often people think it's easier w- with men because they think we don't care about that or or that our weight is somehow just there for banter and i think you know you can lay a lot of the blame for that culture at back at men's doors, because the the whole culture of, you know, banter and making fun of your friends and all of that sort of stuff has contributed massively towards that. But I don't think men talk about it very much. But yeah, I'd, I'd agree that people's reactions to the way people's bodies change is, is absolutely insane sometimes. And I say in the book, it's best to just um, shut up. and realize it doesn't it doesn't matter
2: but it's also funny because i think it also really plays into or especially from my experience like it kind of became a bit of a psyche thing in a way that it hadn't before so i'd put on weight at university i'd then lost a fair bit of it after university and people were coming in with these comments but then it meant when obviously as as you become older and you gradually put on a tiny bit of weight or it's easier to put on weight without realizing I then thought it almost made it a thing for me because I then became obsessed with oh well now people have made that comment the other way. Yeah. Do they now think I'm much bigger and it became a thing of self worth almost.
1: Yeah, it's when you worry that people uh, other if other people have made that comment you have it confirmed to yourself that other people are noticing your weight and they're thinking about it. So any changes in weight then then make you think well what are they thinking about this and it's just not it's not a path worth going down. Yeah, like I, I lost, I lost a lot of weight after university. Like I say, and I didn't care when I was bigger. I really didn't care about my weight. I just, which is so converse to a lot of people's thoughts about people who are overweight and in inverted commas, you know, that that we were worrying about it all the time. But absolutely not. And then, and then, as soon as I lost weight, and people went, "Oh my god, you've lost weight," and then, and that's when I started to get worried about how I looked. Yeah, totally. As soon as people started saying I looked nice that's when I started to worry about it and putting weight on and stuff. So, yeah.
2: And I I think in some ways for me, it actually propelled it even more. Like, I think I was quite happy with where I was at, which was you know, a very normal size. I'm really tall as well. So yeah, I've yeah. always found it difficult because I'm five foot ten. So if someone who's five foot four or the average size of a woman is a five foot four, five foot five. If they're a, a small, that's never that was never going to be me, and it never will, regardless yeah. of if yeah, I'm yeah. a healthy weight or not. But I suddenly became aware, you know, I'd I'd hit quite a healthy weight, and then I thought, should I should I keep going with this? You know, if, yeah, if yeah. people are saying, it looks so good, bizarre.
1: Yeah, it's bizarre, and I I I think culturally it's a, it's a it's an odd thing as well because. You know, as you said, culture's obsessed with thinness and people being slim, but also culture's obsessed with, look at the size of this burger. And, uh, you know, yeah. let's let's all eat. You know, all the food that's thrown to us is the sort of stuff that's not necessarily nutritious. So there's such a imbalance there. And with me, the way men look, I mean, literally within my lifetime, the ideal body shape for a man has gone from skinny waif, noughties, indie guy, to now all i get shown on my instagram algorithm is gigantic (laughs) gigantic men so it's all it's all about putting on as much muscle and weight as possible and cramming yourself into a tiny t-shirt so we're never going to win so we've just got to do what feels good for us and try not to worry about what other people think.
2: Well, I think that's it because it changes and it, it's become it's so horrible to say, but bodies are fashionable and and yeah, you can't, yeah, yeah. you're never going to win. You know. Have you heard about that thing in America? My flatmate was telling me about it yesterday. That like loads of celebs are doing it, where they're using the drug. Sorry, because I know you're diabetic. They're using that drug for diabetics.
1: Yeah, as MPP, to, yeah, to suppress appetite. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know why the the fashionable thing these days seems to be let's all use things for diabetics to. uh Monitor our weight and uh, and our body health, but there's a Zempic, there's this Zoe thing as well, which drives me up the wall because they're basically managing their blood sugar levels and going, oh look, this food actually spikes my blood sugar level. It's like, well, yeah, I could have told you that. Just go and ask any nutritionist. Turns out, if you eat a punnet of grapes, it's going to spike your blood sugar levels, but you don't need to worry about that because you've got a working pancreas. <laughs> like, so I just think this. Ultra focus on the scientific things your body are doing is just another way of putting people on edge the whole time about what they're eating and how they're living their lives. And it, yeah. it drives me a bit mad.
2: Where they're hiding it behind wellness. Like, it's funny you say that yeah, because yeah. my boyfriend's a doctor. Yeah. And I said to him, we were on holiday and a woman had a like a circle thing on the back of her arm. Yeah. And I said to him, what, what's that for? And he said, oh, she's probably diabetic and it's yeah. to monitor her blood sugar. But then suddenly in the gym, I'm thinking, oh, there's so many more diabetic people than I realised. And then I realised it's one of these app things. I thought, for goodness sake, come on, guys.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I don't know why. I mean, it's so stressful being type 1 diabetic. I don't know why people have decided to take some of that uh, burden on themselves despite having a fully working pancreas. But I just think it's a bit mad. But there you go. I'm on a a lifelong mission to bring that company down. So we'll see if it works.
2: (laughs) I'm fully, I'm fully behind <laughs> you. Um, let's come on quickly to talk about uh, the traitors uncloaked. Yes. So uh, when I said I was doing this interview, Hugh, who I work with, said, didn't Ed Gamble host a New Year's Eve party where he dressed up as a traitor?
1: I cannot claim to be the host of that. Uh, so it was a party at Josh Widdicombe's house and the actual, uh-huh. cre- the the creator instigator and main person pushing everything along was ivo graham who is also obsessed with the traitors and is is obsessed with games uh so (laughs) he basically said oh we're playing the traitors at josh's party and i'd say only half the guests had seen the traitors and a quarter, of those, <laughs> a quarter of those were on board with playing a game. There were people there with their kids. There were people trying to get kids to sleep. There were other people who just wanted to have a drink and a chat. And we were just sat on the floor in the middle of the <laughs> sitting room playing Traitors. Um, so it was Ivo, but I absolutely loved it. And I won.
2: Did you? Yes. Is that why? So I thought maybe that's how you landed this gig.
1: Maybe that had something to do with it. But I'm also just, I was vocally a very big fan of the first series of the Traitors. Like I was tweeting about it and stuff. And I have been a guest on Claudia's Radio 2 show a few times and talked to her a lot about, about the traitors. I'm just a really big fan of it. And I think also because I do the Taskmaster podcast, which is about every episode of Taskmaster, I've got form for breaking down television shows to the nth degree and dissecting them. So I think they they probably knew that I could, I could handle this. But I'm very excited to be doing the job. I'm very, very excited.
2: Why do you think we're so obsessed with the traitors? I've never seen people talk about telly like this. It was last New Year's Eve, and everyone was talking about. Yeah, have have you have you seen it? Have you finished it?
1: I I just, I think it's astonishingly well made. First of all, but with quite a simple concept. I mean, everyone is social deduction, which is fantastic. And what I think is really lovely about the show as well is we know exactly who the traitors are, and there's nothing more fun than watching other people work something out when you know what they're. It's like Columbo. Every episode of Columbo, you know who the murderer is, but it's great fun watching uh, watching how he gets there, and also just seeing people mess it up and people saying the wrong thing, and it's just it's it's shot so moodily and intensely, and and it's also at the heart of it. There's so many brilliant characters in the game, and that's mm-hmm. what comes out across the course of uh, of the weeks that it's on. So I'm buzzed to meet the new lot. I'm very interested to see who who they'll get, and also how the fact that we are in the second series, The Traitors will impact it. Yeah. yeah. Because I'm sure there will be be an impact on it, and I'm sure it will make the game different, but just as exciting. But I think we might see some more cutthroat stuff. And I speak as someone who has not seen a single episode of the next series yet.
2: Yeah, I was thinking this earlier. I was thinking, do you think people will be more strategic going into this series having seen number one, maybe more of a game plan?
1: 100%, because also there's international versions. I bet there's at least one person going in there who's seen every minute of The Traitors available across the globe. (laughs) And goes in there with a the perfect game plan, but then does a the game plan work? You never know. You've got all those other people potentially doing something different, so we'll see. I, ca- I cannot we wait. See. I mean, taking the job for me was ninety percent to do with the fact that I get all the episodes earlier than everyone else. So <laughs>
2: I love it. Well, Ed, thank you so much for coming on the Radio Times podcast. This
1: was really great. Thanks, Kellyanne.
2: Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, do scroll back to our feed and listen to my conversation with Sarah Pascoe or Jack Whitehall. Please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing.